0: Mapillary is a platform for gathering photos taken by smartphones and using that data to build a 3D model of the world. Mapillary's model of the world includes labeled objects such as traffic signs, trees, humans, and buildings. This 3D model can be explored, much like you would explore Google Street View the data set that underlies mapillary is crowdsourced from volunteer users who are taking pictures from different vantage points these smartphone photos from the crowdsourcing users are uploaded to mapillary they're queued and they're processed to constantly update and refine the mapillary 3d model of the world mapillary processes high volumes of photos from around the world These images in the photos need to be correctly fit into Mapillary's model of the world, like a puzzle piece sliding into place. And these are 2D images that are being used to build a 3D vision of the world. Those images need to be segmented into the different entities within them. Those entities need to be put through object recognition algorithms. When two user images have a conflict, like let's say one picture is taken before an earthquake happens, and one picture is taken after an earthquake happens, that conflict in the scene needs to be resolved somehow. Mapillary is building a three-dimensional picture of the world, and the company has so many interesting engineering problems. There's this high volume of images, and the level of processing has created the need for a unique sequence of images indexing, queuing, and distributed processing using Apache Storm. In addition to processing all of this data and building a 3D model, Mapillary also serves an API for querying geolocations about traffic signs and road conditions and bus stops. This is the business model, is selling the queries against the Mapillary model of the world. Peter Neubauer is the co-founder of Mapillary. He's also a co-founder of Neo Technology, the company behind Neo4j, which is a graph database. Peter is a world-class engineer, and he joins the show to give a detailed overview of the technology behind Mapillary, from ingressing the photos, to running data engineering jobs, to serving the API. This was a great technical episode, and also touched on the aspects of business because you don't have access to infinite capital when you're running a startup, and this is a capital-intensive uh, engineering workflow with all the processing. So it's pretty interesting discussion of trade-offs. Before we get started, I want to mention that we are looking for sponsors for Q4. If you are a company that's interested in reaching the 50,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily... We'd love to have you as a sponsor. Please send us an email. or I'm jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or you can check out our website. We have a contact form. You can fill out the contact form and tell us what you're looking for, and we would love to have you as a sponsor. We're also hiring right now. We're hiring a podcaster. We're hiring writers. We're hiring other jobs. You can find those at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, let's get to this episode. Peter Neubauer, you are the co-founder of Mapillary. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So we're talking about Mapillary today, and this is a mapping platform. We have Google Maps. That's the mapping platform that people are most familiar with. Why do we need another mapping
1: platform? So Mapillary is not actually a mapping platform. We don't build maps. We are helping to fix the world's map you know, crowdsourcing computer vision and everything that we can do. So basically we extract map features from ground truth.
0: And what's the relationship between Mapillary and a mapping platform like a Google Maps or OpenStreetMap? What kind of other previous technologies do you build off of?
1: We build mostly not on top of maps, but actually on computer vision and deep learning and of course, big data. So what we do is to take in ground truth in form of 2D data and extract and, and find map features that can be used to improve maps, but even do other things. We will talk about that later. But yes, we are a digitalization platform for converting analog ground truth into digitally usable information that others can, for instance, build maps on.
0: And in order to build something like a Google Street View, Google required really large investments to get these cars with these big cameras on top of them. How do you gather your imaging data?
1: We actually don't gather any imaging data at all by ourselves. We let anyone with a camera that can capture you know, imagery and a possibility to geolocate these to upload pictures to our platform or videos. We then see to the de-distortion and to the representation of these images in the same reference system that we have and make sure that all the cameras and all the angles and distortions get normalized so we can actually overlap these features, the 3D space. Maybe I can just uh, briefly explain how these things work. Please do. So if someone uploads an image or a video to our platform, we will take these frames or images and we will first try to find uh, semantically interesting features in these images. So we call it semantic segmentation. So we segment every pixel in that I- image to its most probable class, one of our 150 classes that might be building, sky, road, sign markings or whatever. We then take out the volatile parts of these mappings, for instance, clouds and sky and uh, people, cars and so on, things that are moving. We then take the rest that we assume to be static and we apply another concept to this, which is called structure from motion. So we find matching features, matching pixels and edges and so on, in uh, images that overlap that we think are in the same area and looking at the same scene and via that we do like a big triangulation of all these all these things simultaneously and we gain a depth map between you know in for every image how far do we think the pixels are from the camera and we then overlap these to gain a triangulated 3d model of that scene so it's like a sparse point cloud that we get out of you know different images overlapping each other and then in the last step we apply the segmentation that we have in the beginning to this point cloud so we now know that like this overlapping pixel over there is a lamp post or is a fire hydrant or whatever so we get a point cloud that is semantically Understood by our backend. And then the last step, of course, from that we can use clustering algorithms and, and, and other routines to, for instance, find point objects that might be, you know, street signs or line objects, that might be fences or or road markings, lane markings, crossroads, whatever. And that we extract to be map features that are usable and interesting to, to others. So all this we we expose via our APIs and what you see on mapler.com is basically just a example viewing example on this. So what you see in the in the viewer, which looks like Street View, is really a 3D reconstruction scene with photo textures on it.
0: So in contrast to Google Street View, where maybe if I'm looking at the Street View there is some contextual information, like there is some mapping between the Street View image and the, whatever search results I'm looking at or information about. You know, I can look in Street View and sort of see, okay, this is the McDonald's that's on the corner. I'm not sure if there's signage information that's correlated and, and schematized and whatnot, but... What Mapillary is doing is is building more highly schematized, more high-resolution, more normalized representations of imagery.
1: So I would say, uh, as for Google, Street View is basically a side product of their data collection for what they want to build self-driving cars on, which is like high-definition backend maps. For Mapillary, we do this similar things we don't do high definition maps but we do map features which can be used for for instance high definition maps and also our kind of street view front end is just a byproduct with some of differences we expose like not only the imagery or the textures we are actually exposing all the data so you get you know all the segmentations you can ask mapillary show me all the pictures that have more than 2% of the pixels being occupied by cars in Sweden, that's the query you can place on Mapillary. So, so the the, the street view part, both in in, in Google and in, in Mapillary, is just a a byproduct. It's the photo textures in a you know navigational frame. And also, you can use it use Mapillary with a lot less restrictions than what you can do in Google. So that's why OpenStreetMap, for instance, is using Mapillary extensively for for adding new features to the maps because of licensing reasons also. We are very, very licensing friendly to you know basically anybody.
0: What are some use cases for Mapillary, some applications that have been built with Mapillary? I mean, you mentioned OpenStreetMap, maybe you could talk more about that use case and perhaps some other ones.
1: Yeah, so there's different reasons that people use Mapillary. One reason is like documenting things. That is what, for instance, Uh, the World Bank is doing when they go in Africa and map areas that they find uh, interesting or are threatened by, for instance, like uh, nature uh, catastrophes or others. So they can go in afterwards and look back that, oh, this was a school, which is now a destroyed rumble of, of we don't know. So this is something that we should look extra on. And this is something we can now map afterwards. Uh, the Red Cross has been driving all over Haiti to assess the infrastructure between storms and so on and so on. And this is then very, very interesting from the, for the humanitarian open street map task force, the HOT OSM, to go in and help these organizations to when things actually hit, to map the infrastructure and to visually assess damage on, uh, on earthquake uh, damages and so on. We'd, last year, we imported 6 million images from Microsoft Bing Street View in the Houston area in Florida when the storms hit because we have so good integrations with the OpenStreetMap community and with others and can then overlay that with new imagery that they themselves take via you know, GoPros and, and mobile phones and so on. So this is used for kind of visual mapping. The data we extract is also served for instance, to, to OpenStreetMap where we serve all the traffic signs so they can be compared to what is or is not already in that, in that community and they can add it and you know, extract more data from there. And we have a lot of other classifications like fire hydrants or crossroads or lampposts and so on that are highly interesting for these maps. Same thing goes for other you know, big map providers uh, that we have, you know commercial agreements with that use this uh, this data to rectify the map. So that's one thing. The uh, documenting of places in time is another thing. Even private people are doing this uh, to to document changes in their environment. you know, parts of of towns being built up, schools being built, like all sorts of things. Municipalities are using mapillary for these reasons too, for like surveying. Reasons they want to use the imagery that they themselves have to survey things over time like uh, the, the the quality of the roads the change of environment uh, when building is going on, the quality of the you know greenery on the side of streets and so on and so on a lot of these and they need inventories of you know all the infrastructure basically everything from speed signs to fire hydrants to parking signs, which is a huge uh, a problem in the US. The parking infrastructure is largely surveyed. So we actually right now launching a product with Amazon to assess uh, like help doing this. So cities can can get, you know, the parking signs and the text under the parking signs to assess their infrastructure. There's like 53 billion dollars spent on not using these parking spaces a year. So that's a huge problem. And then of course one big industry is uh, self-driving cars, and we are in contact with all these manufacturers, platforms, and so on that, that that deal with that space. And Mapillary, of course, is a perfect platform to channel the information that is in the cars from all these cameras. I mean, you talk to Comma AI, and so there's a huge flood of information coming, which needs to be factored in to these HD maps and so on. And Mapillary is a backend that is, you know, vendor neutral and open that can be used to extract this information and deliver the extracted map features back to the backends that produce the HD maps together with other information that's, that's coming from autometry and so on and so on.
0: The example of having uh, cars going around Houston after the floods or going through Haiti and building a, an understanding of the damage that has been caused by the natural disasters that seems like a very different application than recognizing highly defined structures like stop signs or stoplights or uh, street fronts. Is there a different data path that, that influx of data is, is following when you're trying to, for example, survey damage versus look at
1: street signs? Right now there's not. Right now surveying for these organizations is about visually, you know, orienting themselves in a street view like manner, uh, maybe take some of the objects that we have into account to find, you know, entry points, but basically they're looking around and assessing visually the infrastructure, right? However, what we're doing at Mapillary is right now we are segmenting A static set of 150 classes that we ourselves find useful for both classification and structure for motion and so on. And for our, you know, big users, which is street level, normal classification, that's buildings, that's trees and so on. You can look it up on the website. However, we are working on closing the kind of training loop, even publicly. We already have some of that out out that you can classify and approve or disprove detections that our algorithms have been doing, which then is used for retraining. And you will be able to do that with random classes, with something that you come up with, might be like double doors or whatever you you, you can think of. You can then you know, classify things, say a thousand signs or a thousand rectangles in 2D data. You can then let the system train on this suggest more do a human feedback loop of you know approve disprove correct and so on until this is good enough to be retraining that algorithm then this comes back and finally you will get uh, hopefully a satisfactory acceptance rate for these detections and then you can merge this into objects or have these detections guide you And maybe do that in all of Haiti on custom classes, which will be fantastic.
0: Before we get into the engineering pipeline and the data, the series of of steps that a piece of data or an image or a collection of images might go through in order to build this application platform, I want to understand where we are contextually and why there are so many startups related to mapping so there's mapbox there's safe graph there's deep maps there's been a boom in new companies that are interested in mapping the physical world to more structured digital space and it's no surprise to me that this is useful But I would like to know, why has there been a boom now? Why didn't it come earlier? Were there some pivotal technological breakthroughs that we needed to make? Or is it more an aspect of now there's market demand because
1: self-driving cars are coming? I think there are different aspects to it. I think that one of the breakthroughs that has been done is that we finally have ways to make the digitalization of reality scalable both in terms of uh, humanly scalable, which OpenStreetMap is doing. You're engaging a lot of kind of fringe contributors. You don't need to be a mapping expert to actually produce high-quality data. And then on the automated side, uh, everything from odometry to computer vision are powered by AI or I would rather call it deep learning. During the last year's breakthrough in uh, computational power, I think you covered it in some other episodes, there has been this new surge of deep learning in this space, which which powers a lot of these efforts. And then the rise of maps uh, coming into, and mapping system coming into mainstream, and also into automotive is certainly one more point, making people realize that maps are a fundamental and and integral part of our infrastructure that we need to make these systems work and the information in them needs to be democratized and open because it is you know part of the public space and 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 that needs to be uh, usable even digitally
0: just to talk a little bit more about the high level business use cases before we dive into the engineering what about drones and augmented reality? So augmented reality is interesting because the SDKs that have come out are really powerful. You can build really cool stuff, but it's kind of like cryptocurrency where we haven't really seen the, quote, killer app of augmented reality yet. And drones are, are really interesting. They've been used for for fairly basic things, just like flying around and taking pictures of stuff, which is super useful. And there's a ton of work to do there. But I feel like when you take augmented reality or you take drones and you add object segmentation to it, either from the point of view of uh, just the fact that, you know, drones could be used to, to pull in images instead of using crowdsourcing people, except that there's kind of a, there's a perhaps a stigma against having drones flying around consumer spaces. That can get you a much faster influx of data. And then, on the other hand, the applications that you could build if you had a semantically segmented world for augmented reality applications or for drones, that seems potentially huge.
1: Yes, that's certainly a huge use case. However, we are actually powering one of the bigger platforms for 3D reconstruction based on drones, which is called Open Drone Map that is building on the same open source project, open uh, structure from motion that we are, you know, putting out on GitHub as Mappler itself is. We feel, however, that the reconstruction and augmented reality is not big enough of a problem or gain or killer app, as you put it, for us to actually go into there and kind of merge uh, drone imagery, which is kind of orthogonal to the, To the surface with, you know, street level imagery. So, what we at Mapillary try to do is concentrate on on street level ground imagery because that's an area that is very, very relevant and cannot be covered with uh, the existing technology. I mean, drones and space photography and so on and so on. And also, the uh, digitalization of the street level space is highly highly relevant for 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 all these industries that i talked about before and it is all uh built on on visual computer vision and and visual impressions because the whole space of roads and paths and so on is built for humans and they take in like 80 percent of their information via visual input so that's where we see the strength of mapler we could of course build you know, a 3D representation of all the angles and so on. But we would spread ourselves thin. There's uh, more to be taken into consideration if you you also alter the altitude of all the imagery.
0: So a data processing pipeline that just takes into account street-level images is not necessarily a good fit for a set of drone images. It's just it's trained in a
1: different way. It is trained in a different way, but also the altitude is actually one of the hardest to get right parameters in this space. The GPS altitude is not reliable, especially not in phones, and Mapillary is a platform where we bring our own devices and the data that we get in is comparatively bad. The GPS positions, for instance, can vary up to like 15 meters or something, and we still can, you know, process them to a degree where we can back correct visually by overlap with the other imagery, the existing photos and make the positioning better. If you factor in drones, you know, the amount of good data you need goes up exponentially. And we just don't think that the data is worth the effort right now.
0: Well, it's like adding another axis i mean uh, for the street level view you kind of just have the x and y and drone you have the z axis as well which yeah i mean we have the z
1: axis already but it's very hard to get accurate data for it we have for instance uh, for positioning the the z axis is very very important uh, for instance if you if you are at a mountain and see a a traffic sign what you think is 10 meters away is that if that is standing in in San Francisco, going downwards, then it's actually, you know, much farther away. So in the US, for instance, there's there's height data for the whole country that we can factor in so we know how to calibrate because we cannot rely on the actual positions of the imagery we are getting in. They have zeta positions, but it's too bad to actually be interesting worldwide. So given the data that we operate on in the consumer space, it's simply safer to assume that things are, you know, one and a half meter over ground.
0: Let's get into the data pipeline. Describe the data gathering in more detail. How does it happen? How does it involve the crowdsourcing mechanism? Describe the data gathering process.
1: So data gathering is actually done with anything that can give us positioned 2D data. So we have our own applications that basically are sequence shooting applications. So you put them on and they will shoot an image every second or every other second, depending on, you know, what you want and how much how much space you have on your memory card. And when you get to Wi-Fi, you will upload that data. Mostly we encode the um, uh, interesting metadata into a JSON structure in the EXIF description field, which we then extract again. We also gather GPX traces, so we can later, for instance, make adjustments. It is, for instance, much more safe to assume a certain constant offset to the moving direction of a camera, uh, mostly pointing forward, and get the compass angle factor via that offset calculation along the trace than to actually uh, trust the the um, gps compass on the phone which also always has, has drift and is not accurate and so on you then upload these images to mapillary and we will harvest them it's uh, it's an upload to an s3 bucket and we will scan that bucket and harvest the image meta information uh, at the same time we take the image and we blur it it gets segmented with a special segmentation network that finds faces and license plates, which is very, very stable. And it's uh, one of our things that, that people want to use outside of Mapillary too, because it's currently the world's best blurring network uh, considering GDPR. That's very interesting to a lot of people. And this gets segmented and anything that's classified as face or license plate is then blurred. Thumbnails are done in different resolutions, put back on CloudFront so we can access them. And after that process is done, we calculate the sequence trace of the, all these uploaded images uh, in a sequence. So that's where the green lines on the, on the maplery map come from. And when that is done, when we have collected, say you uploaded hundred photos or a thousand and they get, you know, connected in, into one sequence and ordered by time and are privacy blurred, then you get the notification and the image is publicly available that this image has been processed. After this, we are having several kind of processing waves on these images. So one is, for instance, the segmentation uh, on on the street level uh, stuff that we need to actually spatially connect it. So the first thing you get is just time-wise, a sequence hop that you can do in that. You can basically do a a (laughs) stop-motion movement along that sequence. When that next process is done, we wait for it a couple of hours because we want to collect more changes in the different tiles that we process. When you upload an image, you actually dirty a little tile around that image where already there is a 3D reconstruction, right? In order to process this incrementally and not need to reprocess every time an image comes in we wait an hour until maybe all the 50 images that that cross this tile in the sequence are uploaded and we then reprocess that dirty tile with the merging of the new visual model or the 3d point cloud which then has effects on the already existing imagery because we we actually wriggle the camera positions into place so that they best fit the visual overlap in their accuracy radiuses. So that means if I come with a bad consumer-grade phone and do a shitty sequence uh, through New York last year, which has an accuracy level in these urban canyons of maybe just 15 meters, and today the city of New York uploads high-resolution, super-nice GPS with just a few centimeters accuracy radius in that tile, then my images will actually have better corrected positions than last year because basically the the visual model gets anchored at the points of the municipality's imagery, right?
0: Wow. There's a lot there to unpack, but I want to first go back to just the crowdsourcer part of it. So I'm a crowdsourcer. I've downloaded the app to my phone and I'm gonna start taking pictures. Why am I doing that? What's my incentive as a crowdsourcer?
1: There's different incentives. Some people are just wanting to have a, a documentation of their places. There's you know, parents documenting their Sunday walks for their kids and sending them the links. Then there's open street mappers who want to map. A lot of people is attracted by the collectiveness of mapillary. They actually collect stuff, right? And a lot of times in OpenStreetMap, for instance, there's a lot of collectors, but they cannot really collect a lot of things anymore because all the streets in, for instance, Germany or or Middle Europe, Central Europe are basically there. You can contribute tags, you can contribute opening hours and, and whatnot. But the initial, you know, fill these white spots on the map euphoria is is not there anymore so people want to go out and actually exercise and collect data and then you have the more structured mappers like municipalities departments of transportation uh, national authorities national road authorities that that import data that they either want to capture themselves or that they already have And want to use the mapillary backend and at the same time make this information publicly available to the citizens. Because all the stuff that comes out of of mapillary and processed images and so is Creative Commons share alike. So you can use it in Wikipedia, on the websites, and so on and so on, which is very friendly for these municipalities. And they know that they easily can reuse that data and let others use that data too.
0: Yeah, I think I heard you talking about the fact that you wanted to be really careful about whether or not you introduced a paid uh, component of this where you would potentially pay these crowdsourcers. And it was an interesting point that you made because you were just conveying the fact that if you do introduce money into a crowdsourcing kind of environment, you really risk degrading the feeling of maybe you would want to call it charity or or just social contribution and it sounds like that is such a significant source of momentum for building your image repository and your data labeling that you have been i don't think you've done any paid acquisition of crowdsources maybe you've you've paid some of the ambassadors or some like no. some of the leaders no, no none of them no we
1: haven't paid anybody However, some of our contributors are paying others and they ask us to help with that, with the organization and so on of these paid captures. I mean, there are cities in the, in in the US that pay taxi drivers to capture the city for them because it's too stressful for them to put, you know, cameras on garbage trucks and, and go around, even if that is fully possible. And then they ask us to coordinate that. So we have one, one team member who does you know, data acquisition, but that's on a level of helping these these partners that want to get data into Mapillary. So they need help with the technicalities and the coordination and so on. But yes, we don't pay anybody to do that. People get, hopefully, enough value out of Mapillary by free hosting and by, you know, opening this and the data set that we produce is not cheap. Comparing the, the CPU hours and GPU hours that we crunch there, it's not a cheap data set. Do you think this
0: structure of crowdsourcing is comprehensive enough? There's enough people who want to do it that you can get a big enough data set? Or are there like tail cases where you're just like, man, none of these people are going to this place in Zimbabwe. We really might need to pay somebody to go to Zimbabwe and take some pictures.
1: So there's two things to it. On one hand, mapillary comes from capillary. So we are assuming that Anybody who finds something interesting and has the will to do it can contribute data. So if someone thinks that, you know, their village in southern Bangladesh is not mapped enough, then take out a camera and do it or send someone with a GoPro around, right? The other thing is that we want to have data where it matters. And um, for many players, it's not that important how much the global coverage of Mapillary is. It's more important how big the coverage is in their local communities. A lot of people are focused on what we call shapes. We have, you know, a on the platform you can create shapes, and mostly people are doing that and are most concerned about their shapes, their neighborhoods, their municipality, and so on. And that's where they care. They don't care if Sabaya is mapped or not.
0: That is an amazing network effect that you've got going there. Let's talk more about the data pipeline. So You've got all these people they're uploading their photos to S3 buckets automatically with the app. The photos land in an S3 bucket and then what happens? Review th- I know you mentioned that in, in in abstract but
1: let's let's dive in a little bit deeper. Yeah, so basically we have two types of backend processing systems. One is a stateless worker-based system. And the other one is a stateful system that actually takes order into account, right? So the first thing that happens is that our harvesters go in. There's two different types of harvesting. One is what I explained to you about the the apps that basically have self-contained EXIF data in the images. So you just put them there and they know where they belong, what sequence they belong to. And so all that is encoded in the EXIF. And then we have another way of uploading, which is you put... uh, images that don't have any EXIF and a GPX file or a video with a GPX file into a sub bucket or a sub folder. And we will harvest that and time match the images to that GPX file to get the positions and the offsets and so on. So these are two types of harvesting, two types of you know information coming in. So when we see these images, we are first creating an entry in our system or we are creating a unique UID and sending that to our Kafka event uh, source center. So we send it to a topic in Kafka. And on the other hand, there is a consumer consisting of uh, an Apache Storm cluster. That's one of your episodes that was highly interesting. And this cluster then talks to the different backends. We currently mostly store our data in a, a post.js cluster and uh, Elasticsearch cluster. And that storm cluster will update these events into, into these backends. For instance, in this case, an image created with a, with a key and basically nothing. Then after that, we have schedulers looking in, for instance, Elasticsearch every minute or so for unprocessed images. So we keep the image state, how, what has it been processed with, what's the metadata and so on in this image document. And the scheduler will look in and say, Oh, there's like no processing information on this at all. So I will schedule it for basic processing, which is basically XF extraction and thumbnailing. That gets put onto a queue by that scheduler. That's RabbitMQ. And these queues are, you know, stateless worker queues. So there's now an image process job on that queue. And then we have. A lot of processors are image processing processors that are deployed on Amazon, you know, and look at this queue. They will act the message when they have processed it, and they will do that in parallel as fast as they can. Meanwhile, the scheduler sends an event. The image state processing is now started to process, gets persisted by storm again into Elasticsearch. It will not be rescheduled because the schedule will see, oh, this is actually processing right now. When this is done, it will send, again, a message that says state is now processed. And then the next wave of you know state processing goes in. Now we need to structure from motion it, and we need to do this and this. So we have this dependency graph of, of processing that is going through uh, to all this.
0: This is a really interesting application of ElasticSearch. If I understand it correctly, because you've got this big influx of images that get put in S3 and then Storm is routinely grabbing the metadata from these images and indexing that metadata in ElasticSearch and then you have these schedulers or these uh, orchestration systems that are talking to ElasticSearch and saying, "Hey ElasticSearch, Have there been any new photos that have been uploaded that have not been processed yet? And Elasticsearch says, yes, these ones have not been processed. And then the schedulers grab those photos and start kicking off all of these image processing jobs. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's basically right.
0: That's fascinating. So I don't think I've seen or I've heard of Elasticsearch being used in that kind of application. Maybe just to give more context, explain why Elasticsearch is a good data store for that. Like, why couldn't you just use like a SQL database and then have a field that says, has this been processed
1: or not? So actually, we did that in the beginning. The whole system evolved from a little Ruby on Rails system based on uh, Post.js. And we stored the current processing state as a, you know, dictionary in an h column. And that way, I coordinated the processing of this, of the images and so on. Until recently, it was actually used. But, you know, half a year ago, uh, the whole thing just ran out of bounds. We had, yeah, at that point, we crossed, you know, 200,000 images a day. We are now at almost a million a day. And we the rails application was starting to, it, it keeps all the state back in, in Postgres. and the amount of transactions to do this was just skyrocketing. And we had a deadlock. There's like two billion transaction IDs that you can have you know in, in Postgres. And we were at 1.3 billion, and we had six weeks. To go until we would hit two billion, because the auto vacuum process could only, you know, vacuum four hundred million of these, while we were adding six hundred million new transactions to the database. So we were running out of transaction IDs, and that's a hard limit. I mean, at that point, Postgres will stop responding until it has cleaned the the vacuum process. One run took three weeks. So You know, we had to migrate all that data and everything to Elasticsearch. We were using that in parallel before. But as you say, the the, the state keeping was actually killing us. And then we moved it to Elasticsearch. And also we moved the whole logic from Rails to Storm. And the amount of transactions to get an image through the whole pipeline went to basically zero because as you know in storm everything if you do it right everything gets bashed at the end and there's like bulk uh, inserts and updates going on and that of course is vastly more effective than a event-wise uh several transactions rails application
0: but aren't there like transactional still like transactional databases that you would rather use than something something else that i'm not sure transactional is the right word but Cassandra, or like, isn't there something other than like Elasticsearch, the, the search thing?
1: So what made us use Elasticsearch was the fantastic searchability of Elasticsearch. I mean, the, the underlying Lucene is fantastic. We were actually experimenting with Neo4j in the beginning because I'm one of the old <laughs> Neo4j founders, and it made the application very, very fast, but we had to batch recreate it like every half hour. But that didn't work out in the end because the queries and the problems we have are highly spatial based. We are basically always having either a shape, a polygon or a bounding box that we materialize the data for. And therefore, good spatial support, fast spatial support, together with good sharding of indexes and, and so is, is paramount for us. So Elasticsearch is actually fitting that build quite well what it didn't fill the bill for in the beginning, we started at 1.7, is the actual operational ability. Field data was just skyrocketing as we got more data. It was, you know, not having any throttling on requests. We, we had a lot of trouble with that. We are still running our Elasticsearch cluster ourselves and not, not trusting Amazon or anyone else to run it because we, we actually need to profile the heap and so on sometimes. But it has been, since we upgraded to 6.3, it has been much smoother sailing. It's still, you know, hiccups and so and performance problems, but not near the level that we had before.
0: So is Elasticsearch like the source of truth data storage system for the different...
1: No, the the source of truth, it's now a truly event source system. So the source of truth is the Kafka events. So when we run into trouble, we have a retention of uh, seven days or 100 gigabyte per topic for the Kafka queues. So within a week, we can actually replay the whole event log for for a topic back into into Storm and basically refill or correct the data in both Elasticsearch and Postgres. However, after that, we kind of trust the database, which is Snapshot. So if something is happening older than that we we're not always you know keeping the logs since the dawn of time we're actually you know cutting them and archiving them at, at some point so it becomes impractical to actually rerun the whole system since the dawn of time <laughs> we could do that but it's not practical so at that point we rely on old snapshots to to catch up to a certain amount of time or we always have the possibility to actually rerun Harvesting. So one of our catastrophic scenarios as a DevOps is to actually say, you know, the database is corrupted or it's just gone. So we need to recreate the data from the source, which is the uploaded imagery. If bad comes to worse, that's the source of truth. We will re-harvest. I just fixed a bug where we had, for instance, a timestamp problem in 2017, which we couldn't fix because the timestamps in the exif was actually wrong. Now, a year later, we got to it and uh, and actually fixed the harvesters, so we would take account for these faulty Android version, and we reharvested the two hundred seven thousand images that were harvested with that, including you know the reprocessing of all the the, the follow up effects of that so yes, that's the source of truth if it is on the long run yes
0: right, okay, so we I'm sure we could spend much more time on this influx. Process, the ingress process. But let's fast forward to you've got these orchestrators that are looking up fresh images that are in the S3 buckets. They're querying Elasticsearch, they're getting the fresh images they're doing some processing on those images, some various machine learning based or models that are doing classification and segmentation and things like that. And then eventually you're going to be building this, or you're going to be adding insights from these images into your model of the world, which gets served by an API layer. So I only got like 15 minutes left. So I want to get through all the way to the API layer, I think probably the next phase is just to talk about like, what are you doing in that model processing phase? And then how is that data getting integrated into your your big model of the real world? And maybe like, what is the data structure or the database or whatever for how you are representing that real
1: world schema that
0: can be queried?
1: So what I just explained was kind of the stateful part of the system. The stateless part of the system is, you know, a lot of Docker containers doing different image processing on on this data. We scale everything by Docker containers that we deploy on a Mesos cluster, which is running on Amazon Slaves. For the image processing layer, we have actually a constraint layer. That's our burst layer that runs with spot instances. So we get a bit down on cost on that. And we scale it dynamically looking at the queues in RabbitMQ then the different, so some of the processors, as I explained earlier, are extracting stateful EXIF information. Some of the others are, for instance, creating that segmentation information and submitting the data again as events into Kafka and later on into Elasticsearch, putting out polygons of different classifications. So these polygons get persisted into different indexes. For instance, the traffic sign segmentation index or the street level general segmentation index that classifies these 150 classes. So per image, there might be around 200 to 800 polygons. So that's like one image document per segmenter segmentation process with these polygons. So right now we have about, I think it's 40 billion polygons on these 350, 400 million images. And this is all stored in Elasticsearch, so it's quite hot. So we can actually query it. So you can, so you can, you know, find, give me, give me stop signs classifications that have more than three instances on the image taking up a space. We store the area of 30% of the image in the lower left corner. So that's quite advanced queries. And you can combine that, of course, with the position and say in the state of Wyoming by this user and so on and so on. So that gets stored in in Elasticsearch. Then the structure from motion processor is taking the semantic information and only considering the polygons that are static, you know, things. It will create a death map or a point cloud, a local point cloud on the image that is stored in S3 and then served together with the image under the same image key. Then we have a merging processor that is taking a lot of these local Depth maps and segmentations or, or a, a de- local point clouds of these images, and it's merging them together into a, a global point cloud. And that one is again stored as actually vector tiles format in S3 or CloudFront. So we're using the Mapbox vector tile format to access these because that's very, very effective. And then when we then reconstruct the sequences uh, and the images uh, are, are done. We will extract vector tiles that we put on S3 also in order to save hits on the database. So when you query, you know, the the, the map features and so on on Mapillary, you're actually getting vector tiles with the different layers and the positions of the images and, and so on and the keys and so on. So that makes it much more scalable without hitting the databases live too much. Explain what a vector tile is. A vector tile is a map format that that Mapbox put out. It encodes the data that you need in normally what you have in in maps is raster tiles. Raster tiles are basically images with transparency that give you a visual representation of features on a map in a layer. Say a building layer, raster tiles is, you know, just PNGs that cover the tile that you're asking for, the, the geographical bounding box, in different levels, and you can layer them over each other. Vector tiles, on the other hand, are tiled data. It's not tiled imagery. It's actually tiled data, which means you do basically the same queries. You say, I need a zoom level 15, center of this and this, or a geohash. And you get back a number of tiles, which are data tiles. And the, and the vector tile data client can stitch them together. So they become a part of the global data layer that is bounding boxed. And the good thing with that is, is that you then can apply styles and so to them dynamically, just like with any CSS on the client side, instead of having raster tiles that need to be styled on the uh, server side. So yes, totally dynamic what you display, how you display it and so on, while keeping the scalability of this zooming and tiling approach to maps that that has started with these raster tiles. Uh, Leaflet, for instance, is one library that's very good in in extracting these raster tiles. And so while Mapbox vector tiles are, are doing that on data layer.
0: Okay, take me through the life of a query, a user incoming query from just an API request to Mapillary.
1: Depends on what query that is, of course. Uh, for, for pure images, we have a static endpoint that goes to CloudFront and it, it, it goes through a image server that can recode that and, and has a bit of indirection there. For normal API requests, we first have a, a S3 load balancer. That goes to an AP that terminates the SSL traffic, of course, and do some base, does some basic stuff. And then comes down to our Marathon Mesos cluster that has a DNS load balancer, an HAProxy. In front of it, that balances round robin containers that are scaled you know, to different instances. So we have an HAProxy Docker container that's scaled to, say, five instances and gets round robin requests from outside. It will then determine what endpoint this is, do the authentication on the client ID, and it will decode the JWT token that you have to identify yourself. And attach that to the request and send it to the different backends. We have actually different backend serving different, different things. Further down, most of our version 3 requests are going to a backend server that runs a Falker based API, Fulker, Netflix Falker is an alternative to GraphQL. So we, the, the API is a graph of data that you can query that we expose as REST and for our own applications as actually uh, a graph. And that one will gen- then make the actual calls to the databases or serve your cached data. If you are asking the same user and, and their sequences two times, you will actually get a cached graph subset of that data. So that saves us a lot of uh, data requests back to the backend, and then this gets, you know, JSON uh, packeted and uh, or REST packeted and and served back. So that is that is the base. So our databases are basically read views of our data, and the only thing that writes to to the databases is the Storm cluster through the event hose. So even a user interaction is resulting in API events that go through kafka through storm into the back end and you will get a cached version of what the result might look like up to the end point but it will be eventually consistent after a few seconds or one second you will actually get the real data that was persisted.
0: so the api request is that like a, a geolocation, like I want this location in space, and then the response is vector tiles?
1: A lot of requests are either GeoJSON or vector tiles. So actually we have a vector tile encoder that serves your dynamic vector tiles. If you ask a bounding box, you you might on some requests that are vector tileable, get these back because they're just so much easier to consume on the, on the client. So you wouldn't really know if you get a statically you know, prefabricated vector tile request back, or our API is giving you dynamically generated vector tile. Uh, you can also request basically all of our APIs as GeoJSON.
0: Okay. I know we're running out of time and we could certainly go deeper on that element as well. By the way, this is one of the most interesting software architectures of the interviews I've done. It's You've got a, a lot of unique problems to solve and that shows in the solutions that you're building how is cost management an issue
1: yes cost management is an issue we are actually spending a lot of time on thinking about how to run this data because you know there's a lot of data in there and we can generate even more data the question is how interesting that data is both in terms of freshness And in terms of global coverage, for instance, we have been producing line features all over the world because we can, we can merge, you know, features, say curbs or fences or lane markings or so just for the sake of it, because we can. However, to do this on a global level, that's very, very expensive recalculations because for one lane marking, this might stretch over like 100 kilometers. We need to consider a lot of detections. One lane marking might have, you know, 100,000 detections. So computational-wise, this becomes a very, very expensive line, right? Uh, And nobody might ever look at that line. So you have to consider how much you materialize up front and if it is better to actually have demo areas where you demonstrate this is what we can do and then request this for your shape because it might be vastly more efficient to actually run a better algorithm with better knowledge on better data in your area than to do it kind of fast, but not that accurate globally. But you know it's not as useful for you as a, as a user. So we're walking that line. And also before we do things nowadays, we just don't run a better blurring algorithm just like that. We actually optimize it. Everything we do has to be incremental and not global. A lot of, for instance, uh, structure for motion reconstruction is global algorithm, like the old Microsoft Photosynth. That was a global algorithm that takes like all the data in it, it reconstructs the, the scene. We can't afford that. We cannot recalculate all the world. So we are spending a lot of time on making these things effective, both in production and also in our research labs that's one reason why we can win these segmentation challenges and so with almost no hardware we have a couple of you know gpus in our office in Graz that are making people sweat in summer but this is nowhere near the type of gpu clusters that baidu or google are using to brute force their results
0: okay last question How do you expect your business to change as these self-driving cars get on the road and you have just a gigantic influx of demand and influx of data?
1: We are seeing that this will be a fantastic search towards the aim of Mapillary this will pretty much if we can get partnership with some of these providers a lot of them doesn't want to open their data to others so others can reuse it this is what we want because mapillary has the mission to you know make the data public when we get there and we get there kind of like you know country-wise town-wise and so on people come to us and want to do this then we will have fantastic coverage fresh coverage of all the places where these cars go Of course, this is nowhere near what Mapillary is trying to do. I mean, we're talking, you know, bike path. We're talking hiking trails, national parks, disaster areas. I mean, this is, of course, one step closer to where data matters. But data does not only matter on roads. That's what might seem interesting. And that's what Google has been focusing on. But there's a lot of other places that people want to have digitalized. So yes, self-driving cars will be a huge boost in that sector, but it's not the end of the road.
0: Peter, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you.
1: Thank you. It was fun being here. Wow.